So here's what happens. The inner defense lawyer in the heart of the Jew at this moment stands up and says, okay, hold on, I have questions. I am one of God's chosen covenantal people. I know the law, I obey the law that was given to us on Mount Sinai. So therefore, I should not be found guilty. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified." For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, In his book... What is the gospel? Greg Gilbert writes these powerful words that I'm about to read to you, these powerful words of satire. And what he says is, he says, let me introduce you to God, little g, and he even says, note the lowercase g. So let me introduce you to God. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping right now. He's old, you know, and he doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were even born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important to their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, he never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. 
Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's just there to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness that you read about sometimes in his old book, uh, you know, having the earth swallow people up and raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing, all that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't ever judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I know deep down he wishes that I'd be better, more loving, less selfish, and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm a human and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God that I know, and I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. Okay, we can go in now. And don't worry, we won't have to stay long, really. He's just grateful for any time that he can get with us. Hmm. If we search our hearts this morning, all of us can admit that we have fashioned that sort of God after uh, the image that I just read to you. We've fashioned God into some sort of image uh, that makes him a little more appeasing. And yet, we come to a text like Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, and we are dragged face to face with four words that we were hoping were somehow not actually going to be in the Bible. The four words are the judgment of God. And this morning, we continue our exposition of the book of Romans. And last week, we saw a laundry list of wickedness. If you're here last week, if you remember that, or if you missed it, you need to go back and listen to the sermon from last week. Chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, show us the depth of depravity that happens when God gives humanity over to a debased and unapproved mind. And we saw things that were hard to read. In fact, Spurgeon said, I don't even like reading this at church because it's so uh, despicable heartless, arrogant. These are things that describe the world. Insolent, haters of God, malicious, full of murder, full of envy. There's even a line in there that I think maybe a mom snuck in, disobedient to parents. <laughs> yeah, full of murder, and then mom's like, and throw disobedience in there at least once. And so what we're going to see this morning as we open up this text is that something happens in the human heart when we read a list like that, when we hear about some horrible, despicable thing that has happened in the world, or we see someone who's sinful, or we see a situation where someone was treated really poorly, injustice, then something rises up within us where we begin to say, well, that's horrible, but I'm not like that. I'm good. I'm actually righteous, and I'm not as bad as those people, whatever those people might be at the moment. And so what Paul is going to do here this morning uh, in this text that we're reading, is that he's going to hand the listener or the reader a little mirror. And basically, I was thinking it'd be great if we were to have done this this morning, if every single person who walked in at the door, we gave them, maybe we sprung at Dollar Store and gave them a nice little compact mirror. So when you walk in the door, hello, sir, good morning, good to see you, here's your mirror. 
hi, ma'am, it's great to have you back. I know you have two or three in your purse, but here's your mirror anyway. And what this does, what this mirror does is it allows our sinful hearts to be exposed by the word of God and our own conscience. And so our hearts are laid bare so that no one is without excuse. So if last week we looked at how unrighteousness is worthy of God's wrath, today in chapter 2 we're also going to learn that self-righteousness is equally deserving of his terrible wrath. So we're going to look at four aspects of this text today. If you're taking note, I hope you are. These are four things we're going to see. Number one, we're going to see there's no excuse, verses 1 and 2. There's also no escape, verses 3 through 5. Thankfully in God, there is no partiality in his judgment, verses 6 through 11. And ultimately, there's no difference between Jew or Greek. All are uh, guilty before a holy God in verses 12 through 16. So buckle up, take a deep breath. We're going to take a long and awkward, cringy stare in the mirror so that none of us can say, but what about this guy? All of us will be guilty before a holy God. So when we read this text, you're going to see the words, oh man, and that is for you and that is for me. This is where the mirror begins to expose us. So let's start with no excuse. Look at verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, unless you're here and a woman saying, well, my gender is off the hook. No, he means, oh human, okay? oh man or oh woman. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, when Paul says, you have no excuse, oh man, I want you to circle that phrase, highlight that phrase. Uh, this is a legal phrase that basically means you are without a reasoned defense. This would be like standing in a courtroom and your uh, counsel printed out his law degree by downloading it off of a website. And he walked in and said, I've never done this before, but I'm going to represent you in a court of law. You need to fire that lawyer. You have not uh, a good counsel and you have shoddy counsel. And that's what he's saying. You have no excuse. You have no reasoned defense defending you and you're in trouble. Uh, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges because you are guilty of the exact same thing you're pronouncing on others. Now, we know this as Christians. The most popular verse in the Bible is contrary to popular opinion. It is not John 3.16, though you'll see that held up at sports games uh, when they're meeting. You'll have them uh, holding up banners that say John 3.16. Uh, it is not Jeremiah 29.11, which is the most misunderstood and misquoted verse in the Bible. Uh, it is actually Matthew 7.1. Matthew 7.1. Who knows what Matthew 7.1 says? In our uh, no, it's judge not, lest you be judged. Everyone knows that, don't they? Every, I mean, it doesn't matter if you think Moses was on the ark or you think an epistle is the wife of an apostle. If you are in the world, you just imagine that, you know, you know this verse and you can memorize this verse, Matthew 7.1. Why is that? Why is this such a well-known verse? Why are we quoted back to us Whenever we make a moral stand that the scriptures speak about culturally, we say, hey, that's a sin. Here's what the Bible says about that. Why are we given back the response, hey, Christian, judge not, lest you be judged? Well, uh, any type of sin that we address in culture 
like when I say, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman, husband and wife, and that sex within the covenant of marriage is before God the only acceptable and sinless form of sexual expression. When I say that, immediately the response is, of course, you're a homophobic, hate-filled bigot. Judge not. Uh, Why is that? Why are we giving that verse back? Well, it obviously comes down to a huge misunderstanding. Now, contextually, when Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, uh, the context of that is that he's not prohibiting any and all judging. His point was that our judgment must be fair and we are only to judge others based on the same standard that we're judging ourselves with. So Jesus goes on in that same section to describe a parable of a man who has a small wood splinter in his eye. And you go to help him with some tweezers to remove the wood splinter. You're a great friend. You're going to reach in his eye and pull that out. But you're unable to do so because you have a two by four sticking out of your own eye and you can't reach. And so Jesus says, obviously, you need to remove the big you know, uh, plank in your eye. And then, but then he says, then go and remove the splinter. And we always leave that part out. And so what Jesus is saying is don't hold one standard uh, out here for people that's different than the standard you hold for yourself. Uh, just a few verses later, he goes on to uh, warn us how to recognize false prophets by fruit in their life. So by no means is he saying, don't have discernment, don't judge, don't make judgments. What he's saying is not prohibiting all forms of moral discernment. He's saying, I'm prohibiting the good old double standard. Here's what David Gusick says. He says, when our judgment in regard to others is wrong, it is often not because we judge according to a standard, but because we're hypocritical in the application of that standard. We ignore the standard in our own life. It is common to judge others by one standard and ourselves by another standard, being far more generous to others than, or to ourselves than to others. You do this because I do this. We all do this. Uh, and ultimately, this phrase, don't judge me, is a self-defeating argument. And that's what Paul's point is. If you tell people, stop being judgmental, you just made a judgment about them. <laughs> so your entire argument is self-defeating. So what Paul is getting at, what Jesus is getting at in, in Matthew 7, is that self-righteous judgment is just as sinful as this evil list of vices that people with debased minds live out. You are still sinning. You may not be outwardly sinning, but you still are living with covetousness. Uh, You might have civilized your sin and made it more acceptable. Maybe you dressed it up with a suit and put makeup on it. Uh, But ultimately, you are uh, maybe not in the gross sensual heathen category, but you're the sophisticated snobby sinner category. And so one commentator points out that fallen man can see faults in others more readily than in himself. Things hideous and repulsive in the lives of others seem quite respectable in his own life. So what happens is the smug, cultured, moralistic sinner, he sends out his little inner defense lawyer to stand up on his shoulder. And at that moment, the defense lawyer stands up and says, hey, wait a minute, I have not done anything evil on that list. I am a good person. But he fails to realize I'm still capable of doing those things. And if I were to break only one command of God, only one command in the law of God, I'm guilty of transgressing all of it. So I may not have carried out murder, but Jesus reminds us that if we harbor anger in our hearts and call our brother a fool, then we are guilty of murder. Anyone here have siblings you grew up with? Then you're guilty of murder because you were angry with them. 
You as a husband may not have committed sexual immorality physically, but you've lusted after a woman, you've fantasized about being with her, therefore you're guilty of committing sexual immorality. You may not have carried out the acts that are specifically listed, uh, like lesbianism, homosexuality in Romans chapter 1. And if you're proud of that and you lean back in your chair and go, I am so much better than those sinners out there, well, then now you're guilty of an insolent, proud, and haughty heart of rebellion. So declaring yourself good does not make you good. Your beliefs don't, about yourself don't determine reality, and they certainly don't deliver you from God's judgment. So Paul begins with saying, there is no excuse if you are a self-righteous sinner. Uh, there's no excuse. But secondly, there's no escape. Notice verse 3. Here it, is, here it is again. Get that mirror out. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume... More likely, you are presuming on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, meaning your non-repentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So what Paul's saying is many will presume falsely that because I haven't faced God's judgment yet, then I get kind of a, a hard pass. God's going to grade me on a curve, and those guys should be guilty, but I haven't been caught yet, so I'm good to go. And, and they would say, look at the kindness of God. Look at the forbearance and the patience. See, I know the verses. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Uh, and so because I haven't been judged yet, God is storing up nothing but love for me. And Paul says, no, there is something being stored up for you. But it's not the love of God, it's the wrath of God. And in the meantime, if God has not judged you immediately in your sin, it's not because he's complicit and grateful that you're getting away with your sin, it's because he's kind to you and he's allowing you time to repent. It's his kindness that ultimately draws you to repentance. Spurgeon says this, he says, It seems to me that every morning when a man wakes up still impenitent and finds himself out of hell, the sunlight seems to say, I shine on thee yet another day, as that in this day thou mayest repent. When your bed receives you at night, I think it seems to say, I will give you another night's rest that you may live to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Every mouthful of bread that comes to the table says, I have to support your body that still you may have space for repentance. Every time you open the Bible, the pages say, we speak with you that you may repent. Every time you hear a sermon, if it be such a sermon as God would have us preach, it pleads with you to turn unto the Lord and live. This morning, if you are walking in secret, unrepentant sin, God graciously loves you this morning to have you here hearing this sermon, whether it's live now or you're listening to this in the future. God loves you, and it's his kindness that's drawing you today to repent, to deal rightly with your sin, to stop hiding it. To stop saying you have no sin, because as John reminds us, if we say that, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So come into the light and let the sin be exposed for what it is and repent, turn from it, mortify it. So Paul says there's no excuse, there's no escape, but thankfully there's no partiality. Look at verse 6. And this is God, he will render to each one according to his works. And so then we have a list of works. We have two paths here. We have one that by patience and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality. 
And the outcome of that, the yield is eternal life. But here's the other path. He says in verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be, here's the yield, wrath and fury. And then he almost repeats himself again. So notice this, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But here's the other path, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. And then verse 11 is kind of a summary of this whole section. He says, for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Uh, I actually trolled Aaron's, uh, Aaron Tobin's Facebook and he posted J.I. Packer's Knowing God this morning and I'm gonna steal this from you. Um, he says, this is what Packer says, the modern idea that a judge should be cold and dispassionate has no place in the Bible. The biblical judge is expected to love justice and fair play and to loathe all ill treatment of man by his fellow man. An unjust judge, one who has no interest in seeking right triumph over wrong, is by biblical standards a monstrosity. The Bible leaves us in no doubt that God loves righteousness and hates iniquity and that the ideal of a judge wholly identified with what is good and right is perfectly fulfilled in him. Thank you for that quote. That's awesome. That is God. God is a, a just God who shows no partiality. You and me, and I'm saying me, I'm doing this whole point and point back. You and I show ourselves partiality. We say, well, the rule doesn't apply to this guy. I, I, get, I get a mulligan, don't I? I? I get a free pass. I get some special treatment. And yet that's not how God is. God is not like the boss or the teacher who passes over one student to prefer another student or another employee, the teacher's pet, the employer's pet, the boss's pet, uh, because of nepotism or favoritism. God is not like the corrupt policeman who's partial to giving women a warning and let them go scot-free if they kind of bat their eyelashes. But then if I'm a little bit short as a man and I'm less friendly, he's going to ticket me. I said this in first service and now my wife's here, so I'm going to get in trouble for this. But um, we were driving one time and we get pulled over. She's, this is before we're married. We're driving along. She gets, she goes, just literally coasts through a stop sign. And there happens to be a policeman behind us, pulls us over. And she goes, well, have you heard my brother is the captain of the um, police department here in Manatee County? And he, he hands her her license back and says, have a nice day, ma'am. And I'm sitting there like, you know, as soon as we drive off, she's, you know, she's cold stoning it. She doesn't look over. And I was like, I can't believe you did that. Now, I did try it a couple weeks later uh, when I got pulled over. It's okay for me to do it. It's not okay for her to do it. Uh, see, God is absolutely fair. God is true in his judgment. He's not partial the way we're partial. Show me the free pass. It works for them. It doesn't work for me. You see, God is absolutely just. William Newell says this, it's a terrifying thought to the great men of earth, but an infinitely comforting thought to every humble God-fearing soul that there is an impartial one with no respect of persons. In God's courtroom, you can't stand before him and say, but do you know who my family is? Do you know how much money we have? Do you know how successful I am? Do you know how popular I am? I'm known in this world. I am somebody. Nor can you say, I'm nobody. And I don't have a great name. I don't have great wealth. I don't have great riches. I have no fame or notoriety. And so I'm not going to have it in with God. No, there's no partiality. So your inability to see your sinfulness does not make you good. It makes you blind. And pride conceals my own failures and magnifies someone else's. So I can't, I can't personally rightly judge other sinners because I'm also a sinner. 
And this is what sets God apart. God alone sits rightly as judge because he alone is sinless. And therefore, he alone can judge righteously and truthfully. Unlike man, he doesn't sit in a courtroom with skewed judgment. Paul says he shows no partiality. Now, let me just visualize um, these two categories that um, he describes here, that he will render to each one according to his works. Note with me that the works include everyone who does good versus everyone who does evil. There's patience in well-doing, and then there's self-seeking and unrighteousness. And the yield in both of those is either wrath and fury, distress, tribulation, or eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. So you could say it this way, because when you hear this way, works, uh-oh, I hear works, I'm scared. Uh, why do I see works in this text? This kind of makes me a little bit uh, nervous. What do I do with this? Um, and ultimately, we know that justification is based on faith, but judgment is based on works. So everyone who does evil, both the miscreant and the moralist, is going to be judged on their evil deeds. And so there's no excuse. There's no escape because there's no partiality. You can't stand before God and say, well, I tried to do good. I did some good. He's going to say, well, but you did evil. You broke one part of the law. So now you're guilty of the sum of it. And I'm going to render to you according to your works. And so no one can stand before God rightly. And so that brings us to this fourth idea that there's no difference. And in this section, I want to spend a little more time in 12 through 16. And what Paul does here is he's going to switch gears a little bit. And he's going to now speak about two more sets of people. And I want you to specifically look for the one who has God's law, in other words, the Jew, and the one who does not have God's law, in other words, the Gentile. And we're going to use the big law, L, the big L law, the Torah, but then Paul's going to inject a different use of the word law, even though in our English we have L-A-W, he's going to inject a different use uh, and meaning, where it's more of like natural law or a moral code. So look out for that as we read this. And look for these two camps. So starting in verse 12, he says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. What do you guys think? Is that Jew or Gentile? You've sinned without the law. You'll perish without the law. That's the Gentile. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now, we should know who this is, Jew or Gentile? Jew. You guys are more confident on that one, but that was easy. So here's what happens. The inner defense lawyer in the heart of the Jew at this moment, stands up and says, okay, hold on, I have questions. I am one of God's chosen covenantal people. I know the law, I obey the law that was given to us on Mount Sinai, so therefore, I should not be found guilty. And Paul says, oh, okay, then let's call the law to the witness stand. And now you are going to be judged by what you know. The law condemns you as a Jew because you've disobeyed what you've known better to disobey. So then what happens? Over on this side of the court, the inner defense lawyer of the Gentile stands up and says, well, hang on. For a minute there, I thought I was in trouble. But if that's how we're judging, uh, then I'm good to go because I don't know the law at all. And so because of my ignorance to the law, I should be pronounced not guilty. Am I right? And so um, ultimately what we see here is these two different people trying to defend themselves. And this just reminds me of being a parent. I don't know any of you guys parents here. It's like we're raising little lawyers, isn't it? We're raising these little fighty, arguing, troublemaking lawyers. I love my children, uh, but my goodness, they're always trying to justify themselves and get out of being punished. And there's always a defense they're making. Like, Dad, you said be home by 11. 
but you didn't say that it was Eastern Standard Time to be home. <laughs> so technically, I'm right uh, in Pacific Standard Time. You weren't, you weren't clear, so I'm good. Like, there's just this, this, within all of us, this defense attorney, this defense. So here's Paul's argument if you want to summarize it. All who sin will suffer the consequences whether they know the law or not. Okay, so with that in mind, let's start with the Jew. The one who's under the law is the phrase he uses. Paul exposes their heart in verse 13. Look at it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Wait a minute. This sounds a lot like James's letter. I thought Paul and James were at total odds with each other. I thought they contradicted one another. No. See, Paul's reminding the self-righteous Jew who we'll see greatly confronted next week as you read ahead at the end of chapter 2. Uh, he's reminding the Jew that just being someone who's heard the law doesn't equate the same as someone who fully obeys it. So only someone who has perfectly obeyed the law from birth will be declared right before God. But what is it clear in Scripture? It's clear that all of us have sinned and fall short. So therefore, we cannot be justified by doing the law because we've been guilty of some part of it. So we need a man who fulfilled the law perfectly to volunteer as tribute for us and stand in the place of execution that we deserve. But sadly, there is no such man. There is no such man. And so merely having special revelation does not give you a, a special mulligan or an advantage over someone who's never heard the Torah. Now, what about on the flip side, the Gentile? Does not having heard the law make you not guilty? Well, I didn't know any better. I didn't go to church growing up. I don't, I don't know the Bible. I can't quote the Ten Commandments. There's thou shalt something in there, but I don't know any better. Well, to say that means you're not guilty would be the same logic as telling the state trooper who pulls you over going 90 in the 40. Well, sir, I had no idea that the speed limit was 40. So I should kind of not be given a ticket. So your, your lack of, of knowledge doesn't excuse judgment. But there's more. Look what Paul says in verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's Torah, by nature do what Torah requires, they are a Torah to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah. Now keep going with me, verse 15. They show that the work of the Torah is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay, so what he's saying, if you look back in verse 14, is he's saying that there's really two laws here. Now, I think I read that wrong. I think I misread that. So let me read verse 14 again correctly. So it happens. When Gentiles who do not have the Torah... By nature, do what the Torah requires. They are a, and this is not Torah here, they are a law or a moral code to themselves, even though they do not have the Torah. Okay, so he's using uh, the word law in two different ways. He's saying there's the Ten Commandments, the law of God, the Mosaic law, the requirements of what God requires. And even though they don't have that, there's something that's been um, kind of communicated in their heart. So even when they don't do those things, when they resist sin... That shows that there's some type of moral code written on their hearts. And then he goes on to say that, verse 15, it's not the actual law, but the work of the law. So the, the principles of right and wrong, the work of the law, is written on the heart. Okay? 
So that doesn't mean you make up your own Ten Commandments. It means in your conscience, the work of the law has been written on your hearts, listen, which is enough to condemn. Here's what Doug Wilson says. The Gentiles don't have the Torah, but they do have nature. And this nature teaches them a number of the tenets found in the Torah. So they don't have the Torah, but they do have natural law, and these two are consistent with one another. So those who may not know the Bible or know the Ten Commandments still have the witness of creation and the witness of conscience, and their conscience will either condemn them or uh, excuse them. Now, what is the conscience? Uh, Thomas Brooks described it as God's deputy, God's spy, God's notary, God's viceroy. People who have never heard the word of God, they don't know the Ten Commandments, they still have a moral compass that they're held accountable to. And in almost every culture, even those that never have had scripture uh, exposure, they still, within their community, believe it's generally wrong to lie, steal, and murder. And so mankind recognizes there's this code of ethics, and when I have a guilty conscience, it means that I've violated this code of ethics that is within me. And so not every unbeliever is a murderer or an adulterer or a thief. So when an unbelieving man is tempted by another woman to commit adultery and he does not, um, then that shows the natural law in his heart has excused him. When he does commit adultery and he tries to go to sleep, uh, he's done what is evil, and so his conscience will uh, constantly accuse him. Uh, There's a great book I highly recommend. It's called Conscience. Um, What it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ. Uh, Someone sent this to uh, the pastors to read, and uh, I picked it up and ended up reading it in one sitting. I just devoured it and just couldn't believe how awesome it was. And one of the things the author says, uh, the authors say together is this. They say, some people devise ways to soothe their conscience or ignore it or stretch it so that they don't feel guilty. That's foolish. Your conscience is a gift. God gave it to you for your good. And when it's condemning you, you need to discern why and then respond. If you rightly understand how holy God is and how sinful you are, your conscience will rightly condemn you when you sin against God. And what Paul is saying at the end of verse 16 is that the day of judgment, on that day, no man, no woman will be able to keep the secrets of their heart hidden. Whether Jew or Gentile, there's no difference. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That means all men and women who have descended from Adam will face the sure judgment, the wrath of God. So I just said a moment ago, there's no man who would stand in that place and fulfill the law perfectly. And yet, this is the gospel that God sent his son, born of a virgin, the seed of the woman, who would be the heel crusher, perfectly fulfilling the law, bearing the awful wrath of God by dying in our place as God's lamb, on a Roman cross. And listen, apart from faith in Christ Jesus, there is no excuse, there is no escape, there is no partiality, there is no difference. You will stand before the great white throne of judgment and you will hear these awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. Enter the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth and receive the penalty for the misdeeds done in the body. And yet, for those who are in Christ, we fall upon the blood of Christ and we say, it is only by the finished work of Jesus who took my place and bore that awful wrath. And I stand now not condemned, uh, but justified, declared righteous. And thus, what is our job? We compel men and women 
to stop making excuses for their sin. We don't make them more comfortable in their sin. We call them with great tears and, of course, with sober judgment in our own life, we call them to repent. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking at yourself saying, I am not unrighteous, then perhaps you're in that second camp of the self-righteous. And we would implore you to repent, to turn from your sin. If we were going to apply this passage of Scripture, a very sobering passage, I think we would do it in three ways. Number one, I want to make sure you know today that judgment delayed is not judgment denied. Hopefully, as I'm communicating this, there's not, I'm not violating what I've just said to you. Hopefully, as I'm reading this to you, as I'm communicating this to you, you know that within my own life, there has been a time of sinfulness and a consistent repentance. And so I'm not looking down my nose at you and saying, you need to do this because that's what good people do. Now, I'm here to tell you that we're all sinful and that we need to turn from our sin and receive the loving grace of God in our life. So I'm not here saying I'm better than you. I'm saying, uh, follow me. I've repented. I'm trusting Christ daily. Uh, And so judgment delayed is not judgment denied. The fact that you've not been judged yet for your sin uh, is an act of God's kindness to you. It's an act of his grace. My grandfather, who's in heaven now, he used to say, if I took a stand-in for God one day and just decided to be God for half an hour, he said the earth would be destroyed. I would blow it up. I would have burn marks all over the planet from lightning strikes because I'd just be done with my enemies. I'd be done with that third grade teacher who was rude. I'd go back and, and end it. And so listen, the fact that you've not incurred the judgment of God, that doesn't mean that it's denied you. It's just been delayed. The second largest volcanic eruption in this century and the largest that affected a largely uh, densely populated area happened in the Philippines in 1991, June 15th, Mount Pinatubo. Uh, The eruption produced high-speed avalanches, the pyroclastic flow, giant mud flows, and this volcanic ash cloud was hundreds of miles across. And the impacts continue today, years and years later. In that eruption, nearly every bridge within 20 miles of the summit was destroyed, and many of the lowland towns were flooded or buried fully in mud. More than 840 people died in the initial explosion, uh, many of them from their roofs collapsing because of the thick, heavy, wet ash. Several more were injured uh, from this explosion. Now, what made this so deadly? Uh, because volcanoes go and they erupt often. What made this one so deadly was how many people were living in close proximity to it. And here's why it happened. One Filipino governmental official said this. They said, when a volcano is silent for too many years, our people forget it's a volcano and they treat it like a mountain. You see, the worst thing we can do is ignore the volcano and move back onto the dormant mountain. And because the wrath of God, the judgment of God seems to be dormant, it's, it's denied. No, it's delayed. You're not getting away with your sin. You're merely storing up more wrath for yourself on the day of judgment. Your judgment. Sometimes we make it the day. It's your day of judgment. So let the mirror of the word of God, of the conscience that God has graciously given you, let it expose the mirror of the ugliness of your depravity so that you would put it to death. So stop hiding your sin Acknowledge it, turn from it, deal with it, confess it, mortify it, and trust Christ to save you from it. 
Number two, this is important for us to note. God doesn't drive you to repentance, but he draws you. Paul says it's this kindness that leads you to repentance. Spurgeon said, notice, dear friends, the Lord does not drive you to repentance. Cain was driven away as a fugitive and a vagabond when he killed his righteous brother Abel. Judas went and hanged himself, being driven by an anguish of remorse because of what he had done in betraying his Lord. But the sweetest and best repentance, it's not just being driven to remorse, it's that which comes not by driving, but by drawing. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. So listen, sinner, God is drawing you today to repent. Christian, if you're walking in unrepentant sin, I pray as a sinner, as a saint, that the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God will melt, if you're an unbeliever, melt your heart of stone as he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And our pastors are going to be available after service today. We don't say this every service, but we are available today. If you're an unbeliever and you uh, desire to be saved by the blood of Jesus, we would believe the Father's drawing you. We want you to place your faith in Christ for salvation. Don't seek to escape the judgment of God. It's only by his providential love and grace that you're here today or that you're listening today. So don't try to escape today. Come and receive salvation. Finally, I think this is super important for all of us as Christians. Our conscience must be captive to the word of God. Some of us look at the sins of others and we feel better about our own condition. Other people have a conscience, though, that's not informed by Scripture. So what happens is they have a misinformed conscience. And that conscience doesn't accuse them the way it's supposed to because it's not informed of God's truth. So they'll champion love even as they're celebrating something that God hates. And they call evil good and they call good evil. And they do that without violating their conscience. So what Paul's describing here, uh, ultimately in some people, it's not a conscience that's informed by the word of God. And we as Christians need to follow the example of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, of course, at the hearing where the Catholic Church was essentially asking him to recant his writings, to uh, recant his beliefs. And here's what he said. This is our example. He said, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. Here's what he says. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not uh, recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. That's our example. We cannot go against conscience as a Christian if it's, if it's informed by the scripture. My conscience is captive to the word of God. So we praise God for men who are bold like Luther, for men who are bold like Paul, who didn't stand idly by why the unrighteous or the self-righteous got comfortable and made excuses for their sin. We as Christians, we praise the Father for our advocate. We don't have to have a self-righteous attorney rise up on our shoulder to plead our case. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is perfectly righteous, who stands before us, who is just in his judgment, and yet who graciously gives us all things. And so may we surrender our lives in gratitude to Christ as we prepare our hearts this morning to receive communion. So let's bow our heads together. Let's thank the Lord for his grace. Uh, And in just a moment, we're going to, during this song, distribute the elements. If you're not a Christian, please do not uh, take one of these cups out of the tray. Let it pass by you. Uh, We don't want to give you any false assurance of salvation. And this is not an empty liturgical activity. This is a time of remembrance and a table we celebrate. So if you're not a Christian, let the past cup 
uh, the cup pass before you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, thank you for your grace. This morning, we acknowledge that no one is without excuse. No one is able to escape. Uh, Literally, all men will stand before the judgment seat and will receive the just penalty for their sin, their rebellion against you. But Lord, we thank you that we have an advocate with the Father, that we have been brought from death to life. We've been saved from being condemned to now being justified, declared righteous. Lord, we stand before you with all of our sins fully paid for in right standing. We thank you for that, Lord. We glory in that. Uh, Lord, may this message um, not be given from lips that are filled with hypocrisy, but from lips, Lord, as we take this to the world, uh, lips of truth with a clean conscience, our hearts sprinkled uh, and forgiven. So, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to sing to you, to uh, have the elements distributed, Lord, in, in just a few moments, Lord, as Dean leads us in a time of communion. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst. We thank you for your spiritual presence here among us, and we ask, Lord, that you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.